0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Tom Howard and uh, I am a member here at West Cohasset. I've been a member here for 20 years and with my family and, and I've been asked by the elder board to, to bring this message today. Um, and the reason being is, as Dale already mentioned, uh, Pastor Joe and his family are on vacation. They're in Texas, uh, where Nicole's family is from, and I'm excited for them to be, to be on vacation and, I want to pray for the message today and I want to pray for them as well. So let's open the message in prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for your love for us and your presence here today, Lord Jesus. And it's a, it's a pleasure for me to, to study your word and enough to be able to try to teach it. And I pray, Lord God, in doing that, that your Holy Spirit uses that. That what I say is correct and true. And that it speaks to the people here. The Holy Spirit will use that. Lord, I pray, Lord, for Pastor Joe and his family, for safe travels, for restful vacation, and for their ongoing ministry to our church uh, when they return. Lord, we ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. So in the the text today is the last three verses of John chapter 2. And uh, I... um, uh, and so I'll, and I'll just give a brief background to, to, to explain kind of where we are okay? so the book of John uh, was written by the apostle John in AD 85 okay? the book's purpose is to lead its readers to saving faith in Christ that's the purpose of why John wrote that book okay? the theme verse for John is in the book of John is John chapter 20 verses 31, 30 and 31 I'll read that Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, the theme verse. He wrote these things, explained these signs, the disciples saw them, John writes about them, in order that the readers would accept Christ have saving faith in him so um, this is the fifth year that I've been uh, been teaching through the book of John i okay? um, I've been able I've been asked to give one sermon a year for the past five years and I followed the same thing that Pastor Joe does usually this summer he's going through Psalms a Psalm here and a Psalm there but usually he goes through a book of the Bible a verse at a time, a chapter at a time, okay? Um, so I want to briefly review what I have covered, okay? First of all, probably if you heard me last year, you may not remember all everything I said, right? And maybe you weren't here last time when I spoke, or maybe you were here and you don't remember if I was spoke last time, okay? Uh, so I want to review. So three years ago, I spoke on John chapter 1, Verses 35 to, uh, to 51. And that was the account of how Jesus met his uh, five of his first disciples, okay? Those being Andrew, his brother Peter, John, John the, the writer of this book, the Apostle John, the one who wrote the book of John, Philip, and his friend Nathaniel. We haven't heard from any of the other disciples yet as, we call, as we've gone through John, So the account of John's first encounter with Nathanael has relevance to our passage today. In chapter 1, verses 45 to 49, we read, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Then Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So now in verse 49, we read Nathanael's response. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So, the miracle of knowing the, the details of Nathanael's whereabouts when Philip approached him about, is, is stirred a belief in Nathanael. It wasn't a big miracle, but it was a miracle nonetheless. Christ even responded to Nathanael in verse 50 by saying, Blessed, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. So right away in chapter 2, John records several things that Nathanael would see, several of the greater things that Jesus predicted he would see. The first was recorded in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, and I covered that two years ago. And as mentioned, Nathanael follows Jesus to Cana with the four other disciples. While there, they saw Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding reception in Cana. So there was a crisis of sorts at the wedding. He was being made of this crisis by his mother Mary. The wine was running out for the guests at the wedding. That would cause great humiliation for the couple. But Jesus turned the water that was in the ceremonial washing jars into wine so that the guests of the wedding reception had ongoing refreshment. That spared the couple, the, the humiliation And that was Christ's first public miracle. The result of that miracle is described in verse 11. I'll read. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So you see again that a miracle that Jesus did brought about faith in his disciples. Then last year, I covered John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. That is the account of, of Jesus first clearing of the temple in Jerusalem. The same five disciples witnessed Christ clear the temple of the money changers and the animal inspectors. They were using God's temple as a marketplace. They were making money of it, making money out of that place. That wasn't the purpose for God's temple. So in verse 17 uh, says in that section, his disciples remembered that it is written Zeal for your house will consume me. So what Christ was acting, Christ was acting with zeal for the purposes of God's temple. He was zealously kicking these people out. What the disciples later remembered was an Old Testament passage in Psalm, the book of Psalm. Psalm 69.9, which says, for zeal, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. So that was a psalm written centuries earlier by King David, okay? And it was, it, it was a messianic psalm. And what a messianic psalm, it's a psalm that talks about the Messiah. It talks about the Messiah that would come later, okay? So we know that Jesus was the Messiah. So that was the psalm talking about Jesus. So the fact that Jesus acted with zeal in clearing the temple was the way that David had predicted the Messiah would act. He would act with zeal towards the temple. That was another sign to the disciples that Jesus was divine, that Jesus was this Messiah. And that furthered their faith, okay? So now we read today's passage. It's found in verses 23 to 25. And I'll read that. Now while he, or Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast or festival, Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So the setting is that Jesus is remaining in Jerusalem after he cleared the temple, and his disciples are likely with him as well at this time. What we first see here in verse 23 is that while in Jerusalem during the Passover festival he performed signs. They weren't specifically explained but they brought about belief in those who witnessed these signs. So I hope that you see that we have a theme here that we've been talking about signs all the way through. So what are signs? What does that mean, signs? Signs are one of the words used in the New Testament to describe the wonderful works or miracles of Jesus. They are the things that defy the laws of nature, things that we cannot understand on our own thinking. Okay, we can't explain them. They defy the laws of nature. So there are three Greek words in the New Testament that talk about the miracles or works or wonderful works, circumnatural things that happen. Now, and I'm going to go a little bit into Greek here. Why, we, why did we do that? Because you know The New Testament was written in Greek. So people, if you want to translate the Bible from Greek into any language, including English, you need to know what the Greek means to do it correctly, right? So the first word in Greek for, those, for these wonderful works is the word teras, T-E-R-A-S, which is usually translated into the English as wonders, okay? So teras... Simply means a marvelous thing. It might be an astonishing thing that happened that left people in awe or in gasp. Okay, a magical trick could be a teros. Okay? The next word in Greek that the New Testament uses to describe supernatural things is the word dunamis, D-U-N-A-M-I-S. That is where we get the word dynamite from. It sounds like it, doesn't it? It literally means power. It can be used as the powers of nature or the powers of a drug or the powers of a human genius. So the last word that the New Testament uses for these marvelous things is semion, S-E-M-E-I-O-N. And that is translated into the English as sign. Okay? That's the Greek word that we've mentioned here in verse 23 and the other references to sign earlier that I've gone over the past few years. That particular word for the wonderful works of Christ is John's favorite word, the, the writer of John. That's the favorite word he likes to use when talking about Christ's miracles. To John, a miracle was not simply an astonishing or powerful thing. It was, the miracle was a sign, okay? And that means that the miracle told something about the person who did it. It was done to authenticate who Jesus was and to show his purposes, Okay? So now that we know what signs are, we see that Jesus performed many of them. They're not specifically recorded what they were, but despite that, the people noticed, right? And in verse 23, we learn that many people believed in his name as a result of seeing these signs. So what does believe in his name mean? Okay? To answer that question, guess what? We have to go back to the Greek again. The words believed... In 23, and in trust in the in the NIV in verse 24 are both the same words in the Greek. So, it's when they write, read it in Greek, it's, it's the same word. They just translate it a little bit different. Okay, and that word is pistuo, p-i-s-t-e-u-o. So, there's two definitions I found for pistuo. First, it's to believe, to put one's faith in, trust to trust with an implication that actions based on that trust may follow. So once again, it's to believe, to put one's faith in, to trust with an implication that actions based on that trust will follow. But also in the the Greek lexicon, uh, pistuo is defined as, and I'll read that as well, to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit, to place confidence in the thing believed. It's used two different ways in the New Testament when they use an epistual, according to the Greek lexicon. The first way I'm going to read here and it sounds kind of high language, but please bear with me. First, it's, I'll quote, of the conviction and trust to which a man is impelled by a certain inner or higher prerogative of soul to trust in Jesus or God to be as able to aid either in obtaining or doing something. And they, what the, new, the Greek lexicon, they would call that saving faith, okay? Second, it's used in the Greek lexicon as, and they would say, a mere acknowledgement of some fact or event. You're acknowledging that that supernatural thing was a miracle. It wasn't a trick, okay? Something like that. And that's an intellectual faith. So we have two different uses of the, in the, in, of the word pistio in the New Testament. A saving faith. Or an intellectual faith so belief and entrust are synonymous or the same with faith and can either be a saving faith or intellectual faith by intellectual faith I mean an acknowledgement that a fact or event is truthful as I mentioned by saving faith I mean a trust that leads to actions based on that faith so the Greek word for name we got believed now we got name that's it that's onoma o-n-o-m-a which, according to the Greek lexicon, is used for everything but which the name covers. Everything, the thought or feeling of which is aroused in the mind by mentioning or hearing or remembering the name. It might be one's rank. When you, when you hear the na- rank general, what do you think about? You know, maybe one's authority. Maybe one's deeds. Well, when you think of the word Messiah, what do you think about? Um... So, going back to verse 23, those who witnessed the signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem believed in his name. They put their faith in Christ's authority. They put their faith in Christ's excellence or his deeds. So is this faith then that we're talking about a saving faith or is it an intellectual faith? Well, there is debate among biblical scholars about that question, okay? Some scholars would say that their faith was a saving faith but Christ wouldn't entrust himself for their service they believed in him he didn't believe in them at least enough to trust them for service we would believe that he certainly entrusted himself to his disciples right but he didn't to these people there are many verses that in support of this uh, this opinion but I'll go over one and I've already read it before the theme verse of the book of John says, but these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay? So John wrote the book of John to have people accept Christ. How did he do that? He wrote about signs that Jesus did and things that Jesus said to stir a, a saving faith in us. So why would then John write about signs that didn't cause a saving faith so the people of that opinion would say that saving faith they would use that verse and other verses to support their opinion on the other side of the debate of which pistio this is are civil scholars both living and dead that would say that the faith of these people in Jerusalem was a mere intellectual acknowledgement among these are John Piper, people we've heard our names, I'm sure. John Piper, Warren Wiersbe, John Calvin, okay? I'll quote Calvin here. Their faith wasn't a, theory, a phony faith by which they commended themselves to men. For the Jerusalem believers here mentioned were convinced that Christ was some, was some great prophet and perhaps that he even ascribed to him the office of Messiah, who they widely accepted would be coming around at that time in history. But Calvin states, and I'll quote, But since they did not grasp the Messiah's special office, their faith was ridiculous, clinging as it did to the world and earthly things. It was also a cold belief, a persuasion empty of any serious attitude of heart. Quite a difference, isn't there? So I'll leave that controversy alone for a while and move on to the rest of my text. I'm not here to try to solve that controversy. I'm not the pastor, right? I can't do that. Okay, so... There is a belief in Jesus stated in verse 23. Why then in verse 24 would Jesus not entrust himself to them? Why would he not believe or trust them back? Right? This same concept is discussed in John 8, 30 to 31. Even I'll read that. Even as he spoke, Jesus spoke. Many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So we see that it takes more than believing in his miracles for a person to be believed in or trusted by Jesus. Jesus is, belief in Jesus based on his miracles alone is a great beginning to our, our, one's journey of faith. But there is more to that journey of faith that alone. There should be some growth in that faith that follows. So why would believing in a miracle have different results? For some, like the disciples mentioned thus far, it's a start to a faith journey that grows and grows in trust and understanding. For others, it had vastly different results. In this case, the result is that Jesus didn't entrust himself to these people in Jerusalem. He either knew that their faith or their pistuo was intellectual only, or he knew that their faith or their pistuo was saving faith, but he couldn't, wouldn't be able to trust them for service like he trusted the disciples. Either way, believing in the miracles or signs of Jesus had different effects on those believing them. So now we'll look at the last statement. He knew what was in each person in verse 25. That is a statement that Christ proved over and over and over again in Scripture that he knew what people were thinking. He knew their intentions, okay? He knew what they would do. He knew what they were doing. All kinds of things. I'll read three quick examples here. John four twenty nine. He told the Samaritan woman at the well all the things that she had ever done. It really impressed her when he when he did that. In John five forty two, he knew that the Jewish leaders did not have God's love in their hearts, and he knew that one of his disciples, Judas, was not a believer and would later and would later betray him. John six sixty four. As mentioned, lots of other examples of that in the Bible. So Jesus knows the human heart. He knows that seeing is not always believing. Seeing is believing. We've heard that before, right? Seeing is not always believing. At least in the sense that causing a belief that actually changes us. So John 4 48, it says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, told him, you will never believe. Okay? The people that Jesus is referring to want his works. They want to see his wonder. They want to see his power. They want to see his teros. They want to see his dunamis. However, they don't want his word. They don't want to stick around long enough to see what this powerful, wonderful person has to say. They don't want to find out why he did the miracle in the first place. They don't want to see his power and continue on with their lives. They don't want to share in his life. They don't want to be changed by the miracles that they see or the miracles that they read about. So we see that in miracles, in matters related, I'm sorry, to our spiritual lives, that seeing isn't always believing. Often first we believe, and then we see. We believe that Jesus did these wonderful things on earth for a reason more important than just impressing us or astonishing us. Okay? Jesus' act... At the well, I mean, at the turning the water to wine, it wasn't done because he wanted to fix the crisis and save, save that couple from humiliation. He did it, and he revealed his glory, okay? And in response to that glorious sign uh, that Jesus did there, that started the journey of faith for those disciples, okay? What did they do in response to that glorious, uh, their, 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 that observation of Jesus? They left what they were doing, and they followed Jesus to Jerusalem, okay? That's about, I think it was a 20, 23-mile trip, okay? And they followed him from the wedding to Jerusalem, and they saw, who pretty cool thing. They saw Jesus clear the temple, and now he's, they're probably seeing him do more signs here. That, that belief that started their faith, they saw the miracle, it started a journey of faith for them. Now, I want to give an example of this, of this believing and seeing uh, that I think might be helpful. When you give an example, it sometimes there's a danger of narrowing. People think, "Well, that's when they think of this believing and seeing." This is what it's talking about. So I don't want to just want to give an example that I think is helpful, and but I don't want to limit believing and seeing to this example alone. But it's called observational selection bias. Who's heard of observational selection bias? Okay, I've heard the concept before, but I didn't know what it was called till preparing for this message. Okay, have you ever bought a car? You bought a car, and then you start noticing, wow, a lot of people have the same car I do. Okay? Wow. Or if you ever, you're, you're pregnant for the first time, and then you know, you're a woman or you're a couple, and you're, you're expecting, and all of a sudden you start seeing pregnant people everywhere. Okay? It's like everybody got pregnant at the same time. It's like they weren't pregnant before, or everybody just bought this car the same day I did. It wasn't there before. Okay? So people wrongly assume they make that assumption, right? But it's not true, is it? People have been getting pregnant at the same frequency roughly for a long, long time, right? And people have been buying these same cars roughly at the same frequency, okay? Um, So how does that relate? How's that example of this, right? So you accept Christ's offer of forgiveness, okay? You start your journey of faith in Christ and then you start seeing Jesus everywhere, okay You've seen christ everywhere you see him when he answers your prayers you pray for something and it's answered you and then you say i oh, jesus did that it wasn't happy it wasn't coincidence jesus answered my prayer okay because you had that belief first you see jesus when you're interacting with people and they're hurting and you want to encourage them you want to tell them about jesus right you see jesus i mean you just see jesus more often okay uh Jesus was there all the time. He didn't just show up, right? You just didn't see him as often. Or maybe you didn't see him at all. So in this small example of mine, there are many others of this, believing comes before seeing. So think about it for a moment. Don't you want to believe in things that can change you? Okay? Those are the important things to believe in. If the thing that we believe in is important and compelling, then it should elicit a change in us. I am a big fan of gravity, right? If you know, <laughs> I believe in gravity. Because I believe in gravity, I don't walk around without weights i don't walk around with weights i believe in it i don't think i need weights to walk around my own weight in my body will hold me down i'm not going to fly up into the air right i act according to my belief in gravity i think you guys all do too looks like it to me so belief in jesus is connected with actions as well we believe in what jesus did and what he said and if we're willing to learn why he did and said these things we will then see the see comes after the belief Often, okay? Some, sometimes not the other way around. Sometimes it does. Seeing is believing, sometimes, isn't it? But seeing may not cause that belief. So, lastly, let's look at the very telling comment at the end of verse 25. He knew what was in each person. So, that doesn't mean that he got an A on his anatomy test. He knows where the liver is, and he knows where the spleen is, and he knows the difference between the large and small intestine, right? He, what that is, is his omniscience, right? We've heard that word before. Omniscience is all-knowing, right? And it's defined as the capacity to know everything that there is to know. Everything that there is to know. Even things that are possible, right? So how does Christ's omniscience relate to us? There's a lot of things that if you really think about it, omniscience and how it relates to me I'm going to give you a few things that might relate to our passage today first it means that there are no complete secrets in our lives okay we may have succeeded in hiding things from everyone on earth okay we may have uh, hidden but we have not hidden them from Jesus the very person that's ever lived that matters the most About what I said or what I did or what I thought or why I did things or the motives for which I did things the very person that it matters the most is the very person that knows the most about what I said and when I what I did and why I did it and my thoughts right he's the judge I can go I can go to court and I might be able to fool a judge (laughs) he doesn't know everything but the judge The most important judge knows everything. And just let that sink in for a second. But on the other side of that humbling uh, truth is that there's always a person who who you can relate to who knows everything about you. Okay? You can look at others in the face and uh, fool them. Okay? Uh, But in relating to Jesus, you are totally known. What your spouse or best friend knows about you doesn't compare. You are fully known by one person, Jesus Christ. So what, what does that mean? Because of that, you can always go to Jesus for help in knowing who you are. He knows who you are better than you do. Think about it, okay? Isn't that what we want? We want to understand ourselves. You know, what is my nature? What is my purpose? Why do I do things that I do? Why do I act in ways or way, that are not what I believe? Act in ways against my conscience, and so on, and so on, and so on. Important things that we can't answer, and we can't go to people and get those answers because they don't know us. Okay? If I went to an earthly counselor with those same questions, they would guess. I mean, they're smart people, they understand the mind better than, than anybody else on earth, but they would just be guessing based on their observations of me based on what i say okay we can go to god and jesus in prayer and reading his word and learn more about that we can talk to jesus in prayer and confession and we will learn that our nature is to sin okay i might seem better than others on the outside right i might even try to look better for others to notice i might rationalize well i'm not as bad as they are in that area so i must be okay Yet Jesus knows, guess what? I'm a mess, okay? I do and say things and think things all the time that I'm ashamed of. I'm not fooling Jesus because he knows me. Since only he knows my nature, only he can help me. I can't help myself, okay? That is a very encouraging part of Jesus' omniscience, okay? So in closing, I want to examine one other side of Christ's omniscience as it relates to his death on the cross. So Christ is all-knowing, right? So Christ, what does he know? He knows what's in each person's heart. He knows what their intentions are. He knows if they mean him good or if they mean him bad, okay? So he can see all the negative thoughts and intentions of others, and guess what? He could avoid them, couldn't he? If I knew people had ill will towards me, guess what I would do? I would avoid them, okay? But that wasn't Jesus' plan. He knew what was in man, and yet he chose to suffer and die on the cross despite that. Why would he do that? He did it for you. <laughs> he did it for me. He did it for the world, okay? Christ could have been self, self-serving uh, using his omniscience, Okay, but he wasn't. Despite his omniscience, he acted for us. Right? So now, in in closing, closing, uh, isn't that someone that you want to believe in? I'll say, I hope so. Isn't that someone that you want to learn more about? I hope so. Isn't that someone to believe in that is worth making a change? I hope so. I'll close in prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, for your love for us and your presence here today. I just thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for the opportunity to study your word. And I do pray that your Holy Spirit uses it. Um, It certainly has been just uh, encouraging to me, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray that for a month again for Pastor Joe and his family for Safe Travels Back Um, and their ongoing ministry when they return. Lord, I pray that your name is glorified. Um, In your name we pray. Amen.